0: Well, welcome. Um, Are you going to
1: sit higher than me? Yeah. Well, <laughs> would you like to sit here? No, you <laughs> no. sit on a chair, too.
0: Okay. Um. <laughs> All right. Who wants the, oh, uh, that chair. <coughs> Well, welcome. (laughs) Now that we are on the same level, um, I was going to ask you at this point to welcome Zubin Mehta, but I think you already have. So (laughs) we'll start with some... um, The way we'll work this is, I will ask him questions for a while, and then if we have time, we may throw it open to questions by you. I guess uh, I heard the concert on Thursday night, or Friday night. Terrific concert. Can you talk a little bit about how you put this program together?
1: Well, part of it is a practical reason. Uh, The LA Philharmonic and I agreed to invite Ms. Shankar to to be our soloist. She has played the piece with me in Florence and in Israel with great success. And I thought it would be good for Los Angeles audiences too. And we've proven that because uh, the last two days, she has had incredible ovations. Uh, The second half I chose because I knew in the four rehearsals I had, most of it would be going to the rehearsing of the Shankar. Work, And I, I picked a work that the orchestra probably knows very well. And it p- proved the point. Although this is another different orchestra. <laughs> I didn't, I have not done Helden Lehman with this orchestra. But as you said to me backstage, I've been conducting this orchestra in name since how many years? 56 years. 56 years. Month. So there are... <laughs> So there have been a few generations that have passed, but that happens in all other orchestras too, Uh, especially in the case of Heldenleben, which I used to do quite often with my LA Philharmonic. (laughs) Uh, And I can't help during rehearsals and performances, remember how some of those musicians interpreted the various uh, solos, etc. Uh, not to say that this orchestra doesn't come up to that level. It's some, in some cases, much higher today. But there were some soloists there. I cannot forget because I engaged them. They became my personal friends. And uh, so I have many sentimental memories also of conducting this piece with the Los Angeles Philharmonic.
0: I I will tell a story that he and I talked about backstage. I took violin lessons from his father many, many years ago and played in his father's orchestra. And in the spring of 1968, his father arranged for any UCLA students who wanted to, to go to the Philharmonics recording sessions. So in May of 1968, which is almost half a century ago, I sat high up in Royce Hall and heard him record Ein Heldenleben with his Los Angeles (laughs) Philharmonic. Really, wonderful. You know, may I ask you a question? You talked about your Philharmonic and the way the orchestra has evolved. Are there any players left from that Heldenleben?
1: I don't think so. The last one retired last year, Michelle Zukovsky, Michelle Bloch, as her name was in those days. I think she's the last one.
0: Yeah. Right. And I'll ask you one other question about the orchestra because I want to go back to the Shankar. How many members of this Los Angeles Philharmonic did you hire?
1: The ones today? Yes. Oh, I would have to look at the names and count. I don't know, Mm -hmm. really. When I left in 1978, I did look at the names and count. I had engaged 86 musicians.
0: So that's almost the whole orchestra.
1: Yes, but most of them have retired now. Yeah,
0: yeah. Let's go back to the Shankar a little bit. You did the premiere performance of that uh, in New York, I think, and you...
1: Yes, with with, uh, Anushka's father, Ravi Shankar. Who is the greatest musician of India? And uh, he had written a concerto before for the London Symphony. And I asked him, I said, why don't you write one for us at the New York Philharmonic? He agreed immediately. And we started talking. And, you know, he doesn't write or read our notation. So he came to our house in New York and played a few themes. I would write them down. And then we had this uh, Jose Luis Greco composer, who then worked further with him, and you will note, are you coming to the concert today? Yes. Oh, okay. You will notice in the Shankar piece there are extended solos for concertmaster, for clarinet, for trumpet, etc. And he sat down with our players at the New York Philharmonic and worked these solos out which should sound like an improvisation. But of course, every time, it's the same improvisation. <laughs> yes. whereas there are improvised bits in, in all the four movements where Anushka and Ravi every day they would improvise differently, and that's happening now too. Uh, I never know when she's gonna end, and we have our little Eye contact when she tells me, this is it, and then we go on.
0: So, in, in a sense, the piece should be different every time it's played. Well,
1: uh, when, when she uh, improvises, it's different every time.
0: One thing I was struck by as I listened on Friday night is how hard this piece is for the orchestra. Very Aris- hard. Rhythmically. I'll explain to you.
1: You know, our musicians are used to major and minor scales, put it simply, and then you have the diminished scale and the augmented scale, but the raga, which is in effect a scale, is completely different. So the left hand fingers of a violin are not used to these kind of scales. That's what makes it. Rhythmically, our musicians are used to any kind of rhythm with all the contemporary music that they play. So that's not such a big problem. It's the playing of the notes of the violins, which is a big problem, and they have mastered it excellently now.
0: It took time, though. It took time. You know, Anushka was just about being born when this concerto was written, wasn't she? I don't know. <laughs> I know
1: her since she's a tiny little girl. And when Raviji played the first concerto with me with the London Symphony, she sat behind and she played the drone, or she played some of the improvisational licks, etc. That was her first uh, public performance, actually.
0: And you will also take this other places with her, won't you, besides... Well, we are
1: playing it in Berlin
0: in March. You know, before we go to the Strauss to talk a little bit about it, um, I noticed at the concert on Friday, you repositioned the strings. there's
1: another practical reason. In the Shankar piece, the first and second violins are almost always playing together. So if I put the first violins to my left and the second to my right, it would have been even harder to get it all together. So I've put them one beside the other, as we used to before. I don't know how my colleague sits the orchestra here, but we now come to sit the orchestra as it was in Mahler's days. Because most of our repertoire is from that period. In other words, the first violins on the left, second on the right, then the cello, and the basses on the left. And the basses love it, because then they hear the first violins, the main, the main theme. They love it, because otherwise they sit on the right and hear the violas only. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> they don't like that too much.
0: Though, I, I will say, as a lifetime second violinist, I don't like that division because it is so hard to hard, hear. Hard, yes, as, it is uh, hard, yeah. But
1: that's the way it was in Toscanini's time also. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and you can hear that the composers were writing for yes, this division exactly. too. Good, exactly. I, I want to come back to Heldenleben, um, which is a piece I think you have recorded three times now. I think so, yeah. once here, once in New in York. York and
1: Berlin. Oh, I forgot Berlin. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. So Berlin. three times. It's clearly a piece that it's important to you. Could you? Uh, I awkward question. Could you talk a little bit about Heldenleben? Well, growing up in Vienna,
1: the music of Richard Strauss, Bruckner, not so much Mahler in my days. Uh, Bruckner and, and Strauss from the Romantic period were very, very common. And besides conductors like Herbert von Karajan always did uh, was one of his parade pieces also and Carl uh, Bohm also and the Vienna Philharmonic had it in its repertoire. But let me tell you a curiosity you know that after about ten minutes into the piece, you hear a solo violin suddenly appearing that is the lady in his life. And the solo violin plays a lot of cadenzas, flirtatious. She tries to seduce him. And, and he replies very somber, very non-committal, with the basses and horns, until she tries harder and harder, and then he finally succumbs. And Then we have a great period of love music between them. But what is curious, and for me, a great surprise was our concertmaster, Mr. Shalifur, is playing on the violin that used to belong to Nathan Milstein. Now, this is a violin I grew up with because Nathan Milstein played with me everywhere in New York and Israel and Los Angeles a lot of times. And uh, I can't believe that this violin has come back to the Los Angeles Philharmonic through the magnanimity of uh, a private person, Uh, and it's wonderful to hear this violin again after so many years. Um, So it's the Philharmonic that owns the violin? No. It's it's uh, the the man who bought it owns it, but he has uh, bequeathed. He has lent it on a permanent basis, I suppose. I don't know the details, but the violin I bought. For the orchestra, not with my money, which <laughs> used to belong to Fritz Kreisler, is still being played in the orchestra. In fact, most of the violins are still all there. But you will hear another solo in the Shankar piece played by the second concert master, and that is a Stradivarius also. It used to belong to Jack Benny. <laughs> Why are you screaming? <laughs> Now Jack Benny, you know his whole story with with money and et cetera, he bought the violin with the condition that he would bequeath it to the Los Angeles Philharmonic and he took a big tax cut because of that. (laughs) So we always knew that this violin would eventually come to us and when he came to play with me once in Israel, Jack Benny, I told him, don't forget, this violin is ours. (laughs)
0: Um, would, uh, I, I just saw, as I was on the internet this morning, You, they have just released, Sony has a complete box of your Strauss recordings. Large yeah. uh, Salome, many of the tone poems with Berlin. Um, I, I know this is a big question. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of Strauss to you? I almost identify you first well, with Strauss. Well,
1: my teacher, Hans Swarovski, was a personal assistant to Strauss, especially during the war years, because being Jewish, half-Jewish, he was not allowed to conduct, and Strauss welcomed him to his home, and he became an assistant. And my teacher also wrote partially the text for one of his last operas, Capriccio. Of course, his name is not mentioned. Guess why? It only says Clemens Krauss, but Hans Swarovski also wrote partially the text to Capriccio. And so I always grew up in Vienna hearing about Strauss, but not only Strauss's tone poems and operas, but Strauss's conducting of the Mozart operas, of the tempo relationships. If you listen ever to the second act finale of The Marriage of Figaro. There are several tempos. But each tempo is related to the other, comes from one another. Because in those days, he didn't have conductors. Musicians had to figure it themselves. So composers wrote these relations from one to the other. And this is what Strauss uh, transmitted to Hans Swarovski and many other. uh, So all the Mozart operas we studied with Swarovski came actually from Strauss. Strauss uh, conducted at the Vienna Opera, Berlin Opera, as a conductor,
0: much more. Have have you conducted, uh, I'm thinking about all the Mozart operas, have you conducted Cosi? Of course. Uh I did
1: all the Da Ponte cycle in Florence with the great English stage director, Jonathan Miller. So we did Don Giovanni, Figaro, and Cosi. And then we did the Magic Flute, with Julie Taymor. Julie Taymor then went on to do The Lion King in New York. So when I took my wife and children to see The Lion King, I said, aha, now I know where all the stuff from the Magic Flute has gone to, (laughs) because I recognize so much of it in The Lion King.
0: You know, uh, we talked earlier about your having conducted this orchestra since January of 1961, which is 56 years, you have since made a career all over, um, well, the United States, Canada, Western Europe, and many other places. You were in Munich for a while, and Florence, and Barcelona, I think. uh, Valencia. Valencia. Um, Here's a personal question. Where's home for you at this point in your life? Los Angeles, without a doubt. Here's, here's where
1: we feel at home. And, you know, America has been very uh, wonderful to me, has welcomed me since 1961. And after our marriage, we've stayed in Los Angeles. And even though I was spent 13 years with the New York Philharmonic, we kept our home here. And we keep on coming back.
0: Um, We are 20-some minutes after the hour. May I open this up to questions? Do any of you have a question for Maestro Medhaven? There. Maestro, I remember when in Los Angeles, you said, come, however you are, come. Don't worry so much about your dress. And I'm wondering if you have any observations on how concert-going... Audiences have changed over your career. I don't understand a word. Um, What he said uh, was that when you were here, you encouraged audiences to come as they are, not feel that it's a um, fancy occasion. And he asked, are you aware of changes in audiences and how they dress uh, over the years? Well, in Central Europe, not.
1: You know, going to a concert has a certain festive atmosphere. It's, it's nice if people dress up to go, but if they are not, we welcome them in any case. But in Central Europe, they're still dressed casually, but in Israel, of course, nobody dresses. <laughs> <laughs> now, I haven't looked here, because it's all dark. I never see who is where. Uh, in Europe, we are used to uh, lighted audiences, nobody puts the lights down, but this is America.
0: I'll I'll, I'll repeat it, Rada.
1: Wait, wait, wait.
0: You have
1: so much experience to share with us. I was wondering if you would give a series of lectures and have someone videotape it, just as Bernstein did, because you have so much to give us in all these years and as I'm sitting here listening to you, I can almost have tears in my eyes with all that you could share with us about these experiences. So I was wondering if you would consider doing a series of lectures that they could videotape and we could buy. Thank you. Uh, I love to talk to audiences, obviously. But uh, my life and the, the way it is composed, there is just no time for that, really. Uh, for instance, now I finish this afternoon, tomorrow I fly to Milan, and I'm doing Verdi's Falstaff at La Scala, a ballet evening. When I say a ballet evening, means eight times. Falstaff eight times, with all the rehearsals, and concerts too. So I'm morning, noon, and night at the theater until the last performances, where I have some mornings free. But there are no more rehearsals left.
0: You know, that raises, though, an interesting question. And I'll ask you, you are still going strong 56 years later. Why not? Well, do you have (laughs) any any thoughts about cutting back at all?
1: No, no. You you know that we get more and more uh, involved and uh, deeper into our music. Uh, I don't be really believe that, because I don't think my interpretations have changed since 56 years ago. Maybe, sometimes, we are, we are conducting some of the finest musicians in the world. Be it Los Angeles Philharmonic, or Chicago, or Berlin, or Vienna. A lot of those musicians have their own opinions about what they are playing. And I love to hear those opinions. And sometimes I give in to them. If I don't agree, if they don't fit into my general interpretation, I respectfully disagree. And we have a talk. But usually these musicians are so wonderful. And they have played the same little solos under different conductors. They also have great amount of experience. So uh, we float, we are flexible.
0: having uh, worked with so many world-class orchestras and not being a musician myself, I wonder is there much of a difference in the character between these world-class orchestras? And if there is, is does that offer a challenge for you to bring out the best of the conductor with that orchestra or get the orchestra to bring out the best of the...
1: Of course, orchestras have their own personalities. But because most of myself and my colleagues, our repertoires are now dovetailing with each other, uh, most of these orchestras are playing the same works. And it depends on the conductor what kind of sound, what kind of style he wants to bring out in the the musicians. Some conductors just accept whatever is being played and they're happy if it ends together. (laughs) (laughs) But some have their own personality and their stamp. And it's very important the style. You know in Europe, style in music since let's say the middle of the 17th century changed every 50 years. There was Bach. Then came Bach's children who, inherited, who was inherited by Mozart and Haydn, then comes the young Beethoven who accepts the Haydn and Mozart style and with the Eroica he lays the foundation stone of the Romantic period, Fidelio also. And so these styles change and the conductors must know what they are doing with these styles They have to do it, musicians also know, but the conductor has to put it together, starting with the tempo, starting with the balances, starting with the intonation in the orchestra. Uh, And then it goes on to Weber and Wagner and and Brahms, uh, and Wagner is the great revolutionary of the middle of the 19th century. With him, everything changed. And then he had his sort of spiritual children Elgar in England, Sibelius in Finland, Puccini in Italy. You don't recognize it superficially, but they all inherited Wagner's genius. Then comes, of course, Schoenberg. Schoenberg was the next one who changed everything. So, conductor has to be at home. And most of the orchestras we conduct, they are at home too. But we have to put it together that an orchestra would play a Mozart symphony, a Strauss tone poem, and after intermission, let's say, a whole French half. And they are at home with every style. Now, all the great orchestras are capable of doing this.
0: Uh, let me put just a little better or sharper edge on his question. When you are asked to conduct, say, a certain or different orchestras, do you think, ah, I'd really like to do this, conduct- this composer with them, that there are things you look forward to with a particular orchestra? Well,
1: I conduct the Vienna Philharmonic a lot, and to do Bruckner and Strauss and all the classical repertoire from Haydn until Brahms. It's an ideal situation. They know the sound, they have the right sound. We don't have to uh, produce the sound as we have to do with sometimes with other orchestras. I was, two years ago, I was in Paris. Now, the Orchestra de Paris is a very fine orchestra. But to rehearse the Brahms first symphony, of course they knew the notes, But the weight of the sound wasn't there. This weight is missing sometimes in Latin countries. I've done, you know, 35 years now with the Florence Opera and Orchestra and we did the Ring Cycle twice. So the Florence Orchestra and also La Scala, they know how to put the weight into a sound. Uh, Playing so much Wagner. And so with them, it's, it's, it's a little bit simpler. But other Latin orchestras, one has to work a lot.
0: Um, I think we have time for one more question, and uh, the man back there had his hand up first. So. Of course,
1: all the orchestras are not familiar with the Ravi Shankar style. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's different.
0: Okay. A, a last question here. Well, Why don't you ask it, and I'll repeat it. Let me rephrase the question and you make sure I've got it right. He asks you, you see many young conductors. Do you see young conductors who you see great futures for or particularly identify with?
1: Well, there's a whole new generation of very talented conductors. I remember the first time I saw a tape of Gustavo. It was the Mahler's Fifth Symphony and I played the tape in Florence with my artistic director and I said look this boy has a great talent we should invite him that's how it starts or word of mouth or a respected friend of mine another conductor tells me look there is this young kid etc so there is a whole generation i would say five or six young conductors that are doing very well the young man from uh, montreal uh, seger very very talented also There's a young Israeli. I think he conducted at the bowl. uh, Lahav Shani. I think he will go, he will do many wonderful things.
0: I would like to say thank you very much. You have got to go get ready for a very, very big concert, but thank you very much for coming today.